Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 141. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. You can like me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan. And you can watch this podcast. If you go on out to my YouTube page, subscribe to my YouTube channel at Brian McClanahan. You can not only listen to the podcast, but you can watch it. If you don't want to find all those things on your own, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you've got all my social media buttons. So just click on those. It'll take you over my Twitter account, my Facebook account, and my YouTube account. And while you're there, why don't you give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way to help keep the podcast going, help keep the lights on. You can also support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You can uh, join there for free. It's always free to join, but you can also purchase my course on secession or on how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. And also, just want to remind you, you can get Brian McClanahan Show gear. If you go out to redbubble.com, do a search for my name. You've got all kinds of merchandise there to purchase my new logo on a T-shirt, a coffee cup, a uh, cold uh, beverage cup, uh, anything you want to get, a clock, a wall clock, all kinds of cool stuff out there. So going out to redbubble.com. And get the Brian McClanahan Show gear. It's a great gift or a great gift for yourself. Okay, all that said, the topic of today is a little piece that appeared in the National Review uh, yesterday, in fact, January 22nd. And it's um, it's by Jay Cost. Jay Cost is a senior writer at uh, Weekly Standard and National Review. So, of course, you know where that's going. He is a Straussian neocon. And so this particular piece caught my, caught my interest because what else would you expect from the National Review? Now, every now and then the National Review gets something right. But when it comes to presidential politics, when it comes to understanding uh, the original republic, they are entirely wrong 99.9% of the time uh, because they're Straussian and neocons, because they're nationalists, they're Hamiltonians. So Jay Koss actually has a book coming out on Hamilton and Madison, where he argues there was a split over the meaning of the Constitution. Uh, and that split was because uh, Hamilton wanted a commercial Republican. Hamilton was more, I'm sorry, uh, Madison was more worried about Republicanism. Uh, this book doesn't come out till June. Uh, I'm just looking at what, what the, uh, what's available online about it at this point. But, uh, and he says, you know, these both, both people were right, ultimately. And um, you know, but they created an American oligarchy. And so that term oligarchy is thrown around a lot these days, when it, particularly when it comes to the South, which is completely idiotic. And uh, I'll, you'll be getting a podcast on a book that I've reviewed that has to deal with that topic in the near future. But I wanted to focus on this piece because it works quite nicely with my nine presidents who screwed up America. And I know that the presidents I'm going to talk about here are in that book. But I, so you're going to get a little extra from me. Of course, you can get, uh, I think it's uh, freehistorycourse.com is where Tom Woods has it. There's a course I have out there on the 10 best and 10 worst presidents in America, in American history. And so I go over some of these people in that. But anyways, 
This particular piece is entitled, The Worst Presidents? Look at America's run-up to the Civil War. Forget about our own day, he says. Pierce Buchanan and Andrew Johnson mishandled the nation's existential crisis to a staggering degree. So I'm going to read this piece. It's not very long, and then I'll comment on some things here. I'll, I'll have an aside when I get to some points that are just completely... Uh, it made me laugh out loud several times. So let's begin this thing. First of all, I will say that uh, I don't know if Jay Cost actually wrote this or if Eric Foner wrote it, because, I mean, that's what you know you would get by reading Eric Foner. He's, he's criticizing Sean Valence, who might as well have written this as well. So let's just start from the beginning. In an opinion piece for the New York Times, Princeton historian Sean Valence suggests that President Donald Trump is on track to rank among America's worst presidents. Quote, Mr. Trump's first year has been an unremitting parade of disgraces that have demeaned him as well as the dignity of the office, Valence writes, portending a very unhappy ending. Well, of course Sean Valence is going to write that. Uh, Sean Valence is a Marxist historian, so he, he doesn't really care for uh, anyone that's not a Marxist. Uh, and so this is this is interesting to you. You go out and read uh, a lot of a lot of your uh, actually Valence has his own textbook uh, in college level textbook. And so this thing is uh, signed across the United States and Sean Valence has become a very popular historian. Um, and unfortunately because he is a Marxist. Interestingly, 12 years ago Valence was speculating about George W. Bush being the worst president in American history. Quote from time to time after hours he wrote I kicked back with my colleagues at Princeton to argue idly about which president really was the worst of them all. The growing consensus reported was that George W. Bush is, a, is in serious contention for the title of worst ever. Now, this is commonplace, right? So <laughs> this is right. I mean, look, uh, Valence kicks back with his Princeton colleagues to debate the worst, and I'm sure that uh, you know none of the, none of the actual good ones are going to be uh, in their top group, but... Uh, Certainly, George W. Bush should rank down the line. I mean, there, there's no doubt about the fact that Bush was a Wilsonian progressive. So in that way, he is not one of the top presidents. But then, then Cost gets into his own speculation about this. And he says, quote, I'm not a fan of presidential rankings. Above all, it is quite difficult, maybe even practically impossible, to develop sufficient expertise on all 44 presidents to rank them all. This is even the case for academics who begin to specialize when they begin to write their dissertations. Hardly anybody knows enough to rank them all. Idle academic chit-chat in the faculty lounge is all well and good, but that's all it is. Idle. Okay, so here's, this is state, stupid statement number one. Uh, number one, you don't have to know everything about a president to rank their performance in office, particularly if you have a guideline by which to rank them, which is, my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, it was how well they upheld their oath to uh, defend the Constitution of the United States. How well they upheld their oath of office. That's a pretty easy way to rank a president. Did they violate their oath of office? And when I say that, did they violate the Constitution? And by the Constitution, did they violate the original Constitution? So that's how I rank the president. This wasn't uh, impossible to do. Now, he does say that historians or academics, quote-unquote academics, do start to specialize. And that is a problem with a modern academy. Because if you go out and look at some of the crap that's produced out there from academics, uh, you would find these people don't know very much about anything. And I would even put uh, perhaps Jay Cost into that group, some of the things he says in this particular piece. Now, maybe Jay Cost... 
uh, is going his book on uh, on Hamilton and Madison is going to be good. I doubt it, but maybe it will be. Uh, but I I think I'm I'm just from looking at what the publisher is saying about it and what he says here, I can guarantee you that it's going to be a bunch of nationalist nonsense. And then he continues, Indeed, what academics in particular appreciate is that the institution of the presidency has evolved over the decades, and not just in the scope of presidential power, but also in expectations of what a president can and cannot do. So ranking presidents is like comparing apples to oranges. A small example. We take for granted the annual State of the Union address, but between Thomas Jefferson and Woodrow Wilson, presidents delivered those messages in writing. So he's saying you can't, you can't compare a modern president with a president from the 19th century, yet that's exactly what he's going to do in this particular piece. You can't do that because presidential powers have, have expanded. Our expectations of what the president can and cannot do is expanded. Does that make their powers constitutional? Does that make it right? Of course not. But this is the dribble you get from Straussian nationalists, neocons like Jay Cost at the National Review or the Weekly Standard. Still, with these difficulties aside, it is pretty easy to identify the best and the worst. It is. You just said you can't do it. But now you have to identify the best and the worst. Well, how are you going to rank that? How are you going to do that if it's just idle chit-chat? This is one of the... <laughs> Look, this piece is, is par for the course. You say in the first par the paragraph before it, you can't do it. But now I'm going to do it. You can't rank these apples oranges. I can't possibly know who the best and the worst are. I can't possibly know about these presidents. But yet here I'm going to do it anyways. Silly. The worst is not Donald Trump, Contra Valence 2018, nor is it George W. Bush, Contra Valence 2006. Whatever your objections to those presidents may be, they unequivocally pale in comparison to the, to the failure in leadership between 1853 and 1869 with the blessed exception of Abraham Lincoln. The blessed exception. <sighs> Let us now take a moment to ponder and to offer up praise and thanks to Abraham Lincoln. Let me sing hosannas in the highest to Abraham Lincoln, the blessed exception of leadership. The leadership that dragged the United States into the bloodiest war in its history. The leadership that pushed for war even when it was not necessary. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that blessed leadership that resulted in a million casualties. What great leadership he, he exhibited during that particular time period. What great leadership from Abraham Lincoln to run over the Constitution and create war powers out of thin air. What fantastic leadership, ladies and gentlemen. My gosh, if we only had leadership like that on a continual basis, the United States would be so much better off. Thank you, Dr. Cost, for saying that this is blessed leadership. Because between 1859, 1853 and 1869, none of the other presidents had blessed leadership. And then he continues. I'm, of course, talking about Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan and Andrew Johnson. Now, I've already done a podcast on Andrew Johnson. Uh, it was entitled Following Lincoln. I can't remember the episode, but it was a long time ago. A couple of years ago, I did that. And, of course, I talk about Andrew Johnson in this 10, 10 best and 10 worst presidents. He's actually one of the 10 best. Now, I don't, 
And I also talk about Franklin Pierce in that group, too. Now, I don't do Buchanan, because Buchanan does have his own problems. One thing I'm going to talk about here with, with Buchanan. Now, he continues. Now, this is a guy that says he can, he's a conservative, first of all. He's a conservative. Now, Jay Koss says, I'm a conservative. I am. I'm a conservative. And uh, But, you know, Pierce, Buchanan, and Johnson, they're all bad. If you go back and look at what Franklin Pierce was doing, let, well, let me just continue with this. We'll, we'll start with Franklin Pierce, because I think he does. All three failed in the same way, fatally mishandling the moment that the existential contradiction inherent to the American founding reached a point of crisis. I'm talking, of course, about the issue of slavery, and later on the matter of Reconstruction. Pierce pushed the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which repealed the Missouri Compromise of 1820 and allowed the residents of the territories to decide the issue of slavery themselves. It was a disaster, and Pierce, a northerner whose electoral coalition depended partially on southern slave owners, should have known better than to capitulate to southern interests. Should have known better than to capitulate to southern. Capitulate. Buchanan was just as bad, if not worse. He was a northerner whose main support came from the South, and his approach was to offer the South just about everything it asked. And when secession came, he claimed he had no power to stop the unlawful act of disunion. Johnson was elected vice president on a national unity ticket and ascended to the White House when Lincoln was assassinated. At first, he was amenable to a vigorous reconstruction, but he softened his position in pursuit of re-election. He figured that going easy on the South would enable him to, reconst to reconstruct the same Jacksonian coalition that had powered Pierce and Buchanan to victory. Okay, so here the history is just so bad, it's not even funny. Number one, and I, I guess I could do a, a whole show on, and, and I'll, so I'll just mention a couple, a whole show on congressional power to regulate slavery in the territories. Because, again, he says it's the issue of slavery. Well, what was the real issue here? The real issue was the extension of slavery into the territories. Did Congress have the power to actually regulate slavery in the territories? And so if you go back and look at, say, the early founding period, and I'll just use an example, Philip Pendleton Barber, who was an old Republican. I mean, this guy was a Jeffersonian. He said that he believed that Congress had the power to regulate slavery in the territories. It was a muni what he called a municipal power, just like they had power of the District of Columbia. They had municipal power over the District of Columbia. Now, in contrast to that, you could argue that this is not the case. That this was not a question of slavery. It was a constitutional crisis over the powers of the general government. Slavery was a peripheral issue here. It was actually power that was involved in this. And remember that Franklin Pierce was not the one who was really pushing the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. That was Stephen Douglas of Illinois. He's the one that wrote it because he wanted to make money, because he wanted to organize Kansas and Nebraska so he could put a railroad through it, and he also wanted to be president. He thought if he could do this, certainly he would get Southern votes. He was wrong about that. Because as you get to 1860, he starts saying, well, after the Dred Scott decision, uh, you know, Douglas would continue to push popular sovereignty. But the question was here, what was Congress's legal role, their, their ability to regulate slavery in the territories? So first of all, if Barber is right, then they do have a municipal power there to regulate slavery in the territories. But 
It says in the Constitution that the Congress has the ability to make all needful rules and regulations regarding the territories. And because they can do that, the argument was they could regulate slavery in the territories. Now, on the other hand, those needful rules and regulations were controlled by Article 1, Section 8, which does not give the Congress any power to regulate slavery at all. So you can make a constitutional argument that Congress did not have the power to regulate slavery, even in the District of Columbia, because it did not have that power in Article 1, Section 8. So this was an interesting constitutional question. Now, Barber, of course, was certainly saying they did. They had this power. And you can go back and say, well, of course, uh, there was no power to regulate slavery in the Articles of Confederation, yet the Congress did it anyways in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. This is true. But did they have the power then, or were they abusing the Constitution, which was the Articles of Confederation at that point? So this is actually a constitutional question, which no one really had the answer for. There were two sides to the issue. One was a very strict constructionist position. One was a much more loose constructionist position. And in this particular case, popular sovereignty or the Missouri Compromise, these were legal questions that needed to be addressed, in a, I think, in a different format. So by saying that Pierce was making mistakes here, there's no leadership. Perhaps this was leadership. Maybe it was actually, the, the problem was that uh, you had people that uh, on both sides of them weren't really willing to compromise. <laughs> or maybe Northerners weren't willing to compromise. I mean, has anyone ever, I know that that's sac, you can't say that's sacrilegious now to say that maybe the North wasn't really willing to compromise on this issue. Uh, the South had already compromised a number of times. Uh, and when you look at the constitutional crisis, uh, that issue had not been addressed. And when you look at what Pierce was outside of this particular issue, and of course so he's going to confine it to this very narrow view, Franklin Pierce said some really good things about the Constitution. And I get into that in that class on the 10 best and 10 worst presidents. Now what about Andrew Johnson? He goes down and he says, uh, uh, well, first of all, let me talk about Buchanan. When he says, when uh, Cost says, when secession came, he claimed he had no power to stop the unlawful act of disunion. Well, it was it wasn't an unlawful act of disunion. Again, this is the Straussian neocomposition. Secession is illegal, unconstitutional. In what world? Again, tell me in the Constitution where it says that a state cannot secede from the Union. And the only things the, state, the states cannot do are those things that are listed in Article 1, Section 10, which secession is not listed in Article 1, Section 10. It doesn't say a state cannot leave the Union. It does say a state cannot form a confederation or alliance. That's why they're within the Union. But if they're out of the Union... That doesn't apply anymore, does it? So certainly, everybody in the founding generation thought that secession was highly possible. Northerners and Southerners, they talked about it. Northerners talked about it more than Southerners. They wanted to leave. 1794, 1801, 1803, 1815, you can go down the line. So Northerners talked about secession quite a bit. Southerners not so much until you start getting into the 1830s. Then they started talking about it. But certainly nobody thought that it was illegal or unlawful, except Jay Cost and all the Straussian nationalist neocons. Lincoln. Yeah. So the blessed. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Now, what about Andrew Johnson? At first, Johnson was for a vigorous reconstruction. What does that mean? So, as I said, Eric Foner could have written this. Eric Foner could have written this piece. Because a vigorous reconstruction would be Eric Foner's unfinished revolution. So what does a vigorous reconstruction mean? 
Does that mean you're going to abuse the Constitution like the radical Republicans were doing? Is that what you're going to support, but you're a, con a conservative? What are you looking to conserve? Certainly not the Constitution that you say you want to uphold and defend. Certainly not the document that uh, is supposed to be the glue that holds the Union together. Certainly not that, because if you're supporting a vigorous Reconstruction, you're supporting a violation of the Constitution over and over again. And Johnson was pointing that out. You can't do this. This is unconstitutional. You can't, you can't pass this legislation. This is unconstitutional. You had the radical Republicans in charge of the rump parliament, essentially. If you look at you know comparing it to other periods in Western civilization, like the rump parliament during the protectorate, with Oliver Cromwell in England, or say the uh, legislature during the French Revolution, that's what you had, and that's what you want. So you wanting to preserve a French Revolutionary style government? That's what that's what conservatism is. He softened his position in support of uh, in pursuit of re-election. Is that so? <laughs> so he really thought. That without the South voting, now I mean, you know, in pursuit of re-election, how? Uh, because it wasn't clear that these states were really going to, uh, you know, really be able to have much of electoral power, anyways. And as it became clear in the elections leading up to the 1868 presidential election, the midterm elections, Johnson was going to get trounced. So. He wasn't pursuing this policy in the hopes of Reconstruction. He was pursuing the policy in the hopes of defending the Constitution, which he took an oath to do. So this is just bad history. Bad history. He goes on. Depending on your personal preferences, you might rank one worse than the other. I personally find Buchanan the most loathsome. But they're all basically the same. The problem of 1850 to 1870 got down to the essential question about the American nation whether the Declaration of Independence applied to all Americans, not or just whites. Again, did Eric Foner write this? Is Jay Cost, is Eric Foner the ghostwriter for Jay Cost? This is the drivel that comes out of NRO and the Weekly Standard. What are they conserving? The Declaration of Independence is not a founding document. The only part of that document that's even important is the last paragraph. Now, you can talk about the principle that of revolution, that Americans have a right and a duty to alter or abolish a government that's become abusive. That, of course, is a founding principle. But he's basically looking at one line of the Declaration. He's a Straussian. He's a Jaffaite. This is what the Jaffaites do. They say, okay, the whole Declaration comes down to one line. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is what the, the Jaffaites, the Straussians, say the Declaration is all about. Forget about that whole last paragraph where we essentially establish that the states are free and independent republics, that we have a union of free and independent republics, that there is a right of secession in the Declaration, that consent is entirely the fabric of American government. I mean, forget all of that and just look at that one line. Lincoln came to understand this. As in many politicians, and indeed many Americans during this age. But these three, blinded by prejudice, bewitched by ambition, and burdened by incompetence, could not. They made a bad situation much, much worse.
I, I don't even, I can't even comment on that state on that sentence. Blinded by prejudice. Okay. How many Americans in the late 19th century were not blinded by quote unquote prejudice? I mean, are you really? I could give you quote after quote from these radical Republicans. Well, they didn't. They didn't. What they wanted to do was bottle former slaves up in the South because they didn't want them around. But yet they equated to votes. Again, this is political power. It wasn't about equality. Lincoln came to understand this. He did. <laughs> Lincoln's white dream. Yeah. Bewitched by ambition. Lincoln wasn't ambitious, chose party over union. He knows that if he doesn't, if he lets the South go, he, or if he brings the South back in, uh, in a certain way, he's not going to be, if you, if you settle the slavery question in the territories, the Republican Party ceases to exist. It never wins another election. Who really is blinded by ambition? Comparing Trump Bush or anybody else, these three men is just not technically incorrect, but profoundly wrong. For it buries the most tragic and lamentable episode of American history under a mountain of presentist grievances that, in historical retrospect, must necessarily come across as quaint. Valence essentially, especially should know better, for he has written one of the best modern accounts of Reconstruction. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Valence and Foner are now... These leftist Marxists are now writing the best histories of Reconstruction. According to National Review and the Weekly Standard, forget about any other books on Reconstruction. Go to the Marxists. So what are you conserving, Dr. Cost? Are you a conservative or a revolutionary Marxist? He knows full well just how terrible executive leadership was during this period and how this failure tore the country into pieces. Right. How, no, the radical Republicans had nothing to do with that. No, no. I mean, Andrew Johnson reconstructing the Union, saying, look, the Union's back together. We're going to heal the wounds. This is what Lincoln had said in his uh, second inaugural. This is what we're going to... So wait, Johnson was bad because he's following re Lincoln's reconstruction plan, but yet Lincoln is the blessed Lincoln? Does this guy even know what he's talking about? American historians, particularly specialists in the Civil War and Reconstruction period, which obviously Jay Coss is not one, should endeavor to remind Americans of their good fortune and not fan the fires of outright hyperbole. Okay, so this is, again, the awful stuff Look, if, that comes from National Review, the Weekly Standard, why anyone would subscribe to these magazines, why anyone would read this stuff unless it's for a good laugh like this or for podcast fodder is beyond me. Jay Cost as a quote-unquote conservative pundit. I mean, he might as well go hang out with Valence in the Princeton Lounge and talk about how bad Donald Trump or George W. Bush are. At least they would get it right with George W. Bush. Might as well go hang out with him. This is what passes for conservative, quote-unquote conservative scholarship anymore. What does this term even mean? He's a revolutionary Marxist. We're, preserve, we're conserving revolutionary Marxism. Uh, all in the name of uh, the one line from the Declaration of Independence, which was a throwaway line to many Americans. Now, I know that uh, the, the Straussians say, no, 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 this is the important line because this is where it 
This is where we got American principles, you know, natural rights and all these other kind of things. And Southerners, eventually, you know, they denied that this was an important line in the Declaration because, uh, you know, Northerners started pushing that line. Jefferson himself said that line really meant nothing. I mean, it really meant nothing. The important part of the Declaration was further on down. So, again, look at my 10 best and 10, president, 10 worst presidents. Get my nine presidents who screwed up America and four tried to save her. Now, neither Buchanan nor Johnson nor Pierce made the four who tried to save her in that book. But I'm sure uh, Jay Cost would not like the fact that um, John Tyler, for example, is one of the, is one of the best in the book. So um, this is just a lot of fun to go after these things. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that when this stuff comes up again, you'll get more of this from me. So I'll see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show.